0: Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 1, chapter 1. Mark 1, chapter 1. We are beginning a sermon series in Mark this morning, a new sermon series in Mark this morning. Um, It is vitally important for us to continually rediscover The gospel of Jesus Christ. It is vitally important. This is true for every generation, every local church, every individual believer. We must continually rediscover afresh who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is vitally important partly because of how quickly we can begin to lose sight of him. How quickly we can experience something of a a Christ drift, if you will wherein we slowly begin to construct a Jesus in our own image and after our own likeness. A-, a Jesus who takes up our causes and concerns and characteristics as his own. A Jesus who takes up our passions and views as his own, or at least wherein we construct a Jesus, wherein, uh, a- a Jesus that depicts a, uh, an idealized version of ourselves. Uh, Here's a picture that demonstrates this reality. Um, Yes. I I don't know what this is. It's like bodybuilder Jesus or superhero Jesus. Uh, This is just daffy. It's ridiculous. Um, And it's a particularly ridiculous uh, illustration of this reality, but still, we we see this all the time. Um, We see this in our own nation, churches and Christians that make a jesus in our own image. We see this on the news and on social media and our neighbor's depictions of uh, the nationalist Jesus, depictions of the socialist Jesus, depictions of the feminist Jesus, depictions of the pluralist Jesus, depictions of the political revolutionary Jesus, or the life coach Jesus, or the hippie Jesus, or the self-help Jesus, or whatever it is, In in this particular season, uh, post-Easter, you might be well uh, uh, used to seeing Jesus on the cover of Time or Life or National Geographic, wherein uh, academics and, and, and journalists Claim that they're on the quest to find the historical Jesus. They say that they want to strip away all of the theological convictions that have so blinded scholars in the past and they want to rediscover who the real historical person Jesus of Nazareth is. And yet they conveniently deny uh, or, or dismiss some of the earliest and most reliable real eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. But, but, even with all of that, even with the depictions we see of Jesus in the news and on social media and on magazines and all of this, we should be well aware that this problem of making a Jesus in our own image after our own likeness, this making a Jesus who is comfortable for us, who never challenges us or rebukes us or contradicts us, this is not just a problem out there. This is a problem in here. This is a problem in our hearts. We still carry the flesh with us, same as anyone else. And so we must always be rediscovering who Jesus is and what he's done for ourselves so that the Jesus we worship and swear allegiance to is the true Jesus, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. So that instead of making a Jesus in our own image, we're more and more fashioned into his image. So that instead of worshiping a a false Jesus or a faulty Jesus or a blurry Jesus, we worship the factual Jesus. And so that instead of bearing witness to a Jesus who represents us and our pet causes in the world, we bear witness to a Christ, the true Christ, the biblical Christ, to a world that's in desperate need of Him. And my friends, for the next couple of years, that's why we're going to do a deep dive into Mark's gospel. I did say a couple of years, yes. Uh, we're we're going to be here for a while. Uh, Lord willing, we'll conclude our time in Mark's gospel sometime in November 2022, which I guess is a, actually a little less than a year. Uh, and we're going to actually take a few breaks in that time as well. Uh, we're going to take a break over the summer, summer of 2021 and 2020, 20, uh, 2022. And we'll take a break for Advent uh, this upcoming December and December 2021. Uh, But besides that, we'll be slowly working our way through Mark, which is a book which is so clearly and unapologetically about Jesus, a book based on real eyewitness accounts of Jesus, a book which so clearly and urgently and potently declares the undiluted gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is, is that in our time in this book, we would come to see him more clearly, that we would worship him more warmly, that we would follow him more faithfully through this book and what we find therein. And so we're going to begin our time this morning in this book by looking at just the first verse of the first chapter, Mark 1.1. And much of our time today is, is, is going to be spent in just kind of dealing with some merely introductory matters. Uh, As the first two points will will pertain to the the authorship and the structure and character of the book. And then the third point, we're going to just do a brief exposition of Mark 1.1. If you've not been with us for very long and and been with us while we've gone through a a book of the the Bible in more of a lengthy manner, uh, we usually do this. We spend a bit more time on the first Sunday just introducing the book as a whole, And with that, this morning might feel a little more uh, heavy on the teaching side rather than the preaching side. Of course, you know, uh, all preaching contains an element of teaching. But this is going to be a little heavier on the teaching side as we just consider uh, just some of the the aspects of this book. But we kind of want to set the table... For this book, so that we're prepared to fit for the feast that is the Gospel of Mark. We want to we get a lay of the land so that as we journey through Mark, we know where we're going and we have a good sense and feel of, of what we're looking at. So now, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're going to re- read Mark 1:1. 1, 1. let's listen with reverence and joy. This is the word of our God. This comes with the same authority as if Jesus was here speaking these words to us right now, this word comes with the very same authority. This is the word of our God written by Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for Mark's gospel. We give you thanks for the the clear depiction of the person and work of Jesus, the identity and work of Jesus. In, in many ways, Mark encapsulates what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says that I chose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I pray that as I preach and Dan preaches and, and other guests might preach this series that we would know nothing else but jesus christ and him crucified that christ would be primary that christ would be seen as glorious that christ would be so enjoyed in our hearts as your people and we would be a people who grow in passionate worship and exaltation of him and faithful evangelism of him and faithful enjoyments of of his beauty and excellencies. Lord, work within us, work through this book and through this teaching now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, look with me at the composer, the characteristics and the content of Mark. So first, the composer. To start with, when you hear our title for the book, the the Gospel of Mark, You might be wondering who this guy is, who Mark is. He's the author. Uh, Historically, uh, Christians have called those who are not apostles, but who have authored a gospel, they've called them evangelists. And this comes from the Greek word euangelion, which is uh, in, in English translated as gospel. And this was Mark. He was not an apostle. He was an evangelist. That's not to say, however, that Mark was not an eyewitness to at least some of the events of the earthly ministry of Jesus. There are no explicit self-references to Mark in this gospel. Scholars have tended to think that Mark does make a very obscure and strange appearance. We find this in Mark 14, 51 and 52. Uh, There's an account of this obscure event that none of the other gospels mentions. It tells of an event that happens after the arrest of Jesus. It says that a young man was following close behind in nothing but a linen cloth, but his bo- uh, about his body, and they seized him, it says. Uh, the Roman soldiers, I assume, seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And we're not sure, but we think this is Mark. We think this is Mark. Uh, we do know that Mark was a Jewish man who lived in Israel at the time of Jesus uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, so it is possible, at least, that he witnessed some events during the, the earthly ministry of Jesus. What's more, though, is that Mark does make more explicit Uh, appearances elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, In relation to Paul, in Acts 12, 25, we see that Mark accompanied Paul uh, in Barnabas on their journey back to Antioch from Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem seems to be where Mark uh, was from. And we also see in Acts 15, 36 to 41, that when Paul and Barnabas were about to set out on their second missionary journey, revisiting many of the churches that they planted, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark but Paul disagreed because Mark apparently had abandoned Paul on a previous missionary journey. And so a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas that led them to separating with Barnabas taking Mark and Paul taking Silas on these various missionary journeys. Uh, thankfully, we can rest assured that uh, Paul and Mark had reconciliation later, since much later when Paul is in prison. He's writing various letters to churches and individuals uh, that we find in the New Testament. He speaks more positively of Mark. You can find that in Colossians 4.10, Philemon verse 24, and 2 Timothy 4.11. However, more particularly relevant to Mark's gospel is Mark's friendship and partnership with Peter. Uh, in Acts 12.12, we see that when Peter gets out of prison in Jerusalem... The first place he goes is to the house of Mark's mother. Uh, so, you know, if, if you're getting out of prison, you likely would feel a, uh, an urge to go somewhere safe and to someone you trust to get, you know, your, your legs, uh, your sea legs, you know, get things kind of settled and get back in the swing of things. Apparently, Mark and his family kind of fit that description for Peter. And this makes sense to us when we consider the, the great affection that Peter had for Mark. We see in, in 1 Peter 5.13. There, Peter is, is passing along greetings to the church that he's writing to. And this is what he says. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Uh, now, when he talks about she who is at Babylon, he's not speaking of a literal woman in a literal Babylon. He's, in referring to Babylon, he's talking about the city of Rome. And uh, in, in saying she, he's referring to the church, the local church in Rome. And when he refers to she, yeah, he's referring to the local church in Rome. And this is where where Peter lived and pastored. Uh, From what we can piece together in history, uh, Peter moved to Rome in A.D. 42. That's the second year of Claudius' reign when apparently Peter moved to Rome. And he lived and pastored there until his death in A.D. 64 when he was killed under Nero when there was a very intense persecution going on for the Christians in Rome. And Mark lived there in Rome with Peter as his assistant and his partner in ministry, and uh, he specifically mentions Mark here in First Peter five thirteen. Uh, out of all the people in this local church, because of his partnership in the gospel with Peter, and because of his uh, uh, or because of his partnership in the gospel with Mark, and his particular affection for Mark, which is made evident when Peter calls him my son. He calls him my son. That's a term of endearment and affection. And now I say that Mark's relationship with Peter is more relevant to Mark's gospel because the content of Mark's gospel is mainly based on the eyewitness testimonies and teachings of Jesus. So you might notice this as we kind of move throughout uh, the gospel of Mark. Many of the things are written from Peter's perspective, you know, Peter's Particular feelings and particular experiences are, are spoken of on several occasions throughout the gospel uh, and, and that does show that this is kind of being written from the, the perspective of Peter. And we also have historical uh, accounts outside of the Bible for Mark's gospel being based on the testimony and teachings of Peter to Mark. We have evidence of, of this from the, the later uh, second uh, century prologue or introduction that was written for Mark's gospel. Uh, which claimed that Mark wrote his gospel, I quote as paul uh, P- as peter 's interpreter, uh, Irenaeus, a second century church father, refers to Mark as the disciple and interpreter of Peter, who published the teachings of Peter in this gospel. Clement of Alexandria, another second century church father, once wrote that when the spirit when by the spirit Peter had publicly proclaimed the gospel in Rome. Many of his hearers urged Mark as one who had followed him for years and remembered what he had said, to put it all down in writing. This he did and gave copies to all who asked. When Peter learned of it, he neither objected nor promoted it. And those are all second century confirmations that Mark wrote in this gospel. But We also have a first century confirmation of this, uh, a, a tradition that confirmed this claim. A man named Papias was writing in the late first century, and he mentions that one of the elders of the church in Rome had said this, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, but not in order, all that he had remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Peter used to teach as the occasion demanded without giving systematic arrangement to the Lord's sayings, so that Mark did not err in his writing down some things, just as he recalled them, for he had one overriding purpose, to omit nothing that he had heard and to make no false statements in his account. So you see, he composed this gospel based on the teachings of Peter, not in chronological order, Popeye says, but, but Mark strove to give an accurate account of Peter's eyewitness testimonies and teaching. So that's just some of what we know about Mark and how he came to compose this gospel. But then, I not only want to. I want you to know something not of just the the, the authorship, the, the composer of Mark's gospel. As we begin this series, I also want you to see something of the characteristics of this book, which are which are so fascinating and, and lovely. And this brings us to our second point. I want to discuss some of the outline, uh, the order, the traits of this book. So first things first. When considering the characteristics of this book, we need to understand that this book is a gospel. It's a gospel, which is a literary genre that we find in the New Testament. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And I don't want this to be confusing because calling this book along with Matthew, Luke, and John gospels was a later development, something that came in the 2nd century. Uh, When Mark was writing this book, uh, there was no literary genre called gospel. Gospel was simply a word that meant good news and so when Mark uses the, the word, uh, that's what he means. When, when he wrote this book, he was writing a book that was not entirely unlike other uh, biographies of the day, actually, and yet a major difference is that Mark was not simply trying to offer a historical account of Christ's life. He's trying also to teach and train and evangelize and edify disciples through this book, which is Something that's true of the other gospels as well. So, you know, that's just to say, we can't simply call the gospels biographies. They're they're theological biographies. They're trying to teach and train and evangelize and edify followers of Jesus through the book. And and so they deserve something of their own literary category, which is why we came to call them gospels eventually. And based on the evidence that we have for Mark's authorship of this gospel that we've seen so far, we could date Mark's gospel sometime between the 50s and 60s of the first century, which would make it likely the earliest gospel written just 30 or less years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So in one sense, Mark is something of an innovator here. Uh, It seems that Matthew and Luke may have even borrowed from Mark's writings to shape and form their own gospels. Mark is something of an innovator here. Now, as I mentioned uh, from Papias, the stories and teachings and miracles of Jesus are not told in chronological order in Mark's gospel, which is something that's, uh, that can tend to be kind of hard for us as modern Western people to uh, cope with. You know, normally uh, when we read stories, we think in linear terms, and we assume that if things are accurately told, they must be in chronological order. That's not a first century expectation, and that's not... What Mark has done here. That's, that's not to say, however, that Mark's rendition of the events of Jesus' life are randomly ordered or haphazardly ordered. Uh, throughout history, there have been people who have claimed that Mark is just kind of jotting everything down in a chaotic manner. Uh, and, and for that reason, some people have kind of disparaged Mark's gospel. But there is a definite and intentional and even brilliant order and outline to Mark's gospel. Uh, the outline is such that there's, of course, an introduction and uh, a conclusion. The introduction is there in uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and then the conclusion is in chapter 16 there, and uh, then there's there's two main parts or two main points to the body of Mark. Uh, there's Mark 1, 9 through 8, 21, in which Mark teaches about the kingship of Christ, and then that's the the predominant theme there. And then there's Mark 8:22 through 15:47 in which Mark teaches about the cross of Christ. That's the predominant theme in this section. And this is what this book is ultimately about. It's about the kingship and cross of Christ, which would have been particularly relevant to first century people. Like we we need to understand how countercultural what the the how scandalous The preaching of the apostles was how upside down the message of the gospel was when the apostles preached it to claim that God had come to humanity in the flesh in order to die the death of a wretched condemned criminal on a Roman cross was seen as folly by many. Okay, it would have been like us today, worshiping someone who many deem to be a criminal condemned to capital punishment via the electric chair or the lynching tree. You know, naturally, we don't like the thought of that. We we, we like to picture Jesus as the superhero, like we saw in that image earlier, the one who breaks the cross. He doesn't die on the cross. He breaks the cross with this huge superhero bodybuilder muscles. We like to think of Jesus as a superhero, not a, a man who was crucified and condemned as a criminal. But that's not what happened. Mark declares to us the one true gospel, the gospel that says, You deserve death and hell as a condemned criminal because you have committed cosmic treason against a holy God who is the king of the universe, but that that God came down willingly to suffer that condemnation and death so that you can go free. That's radically scandalous. That's radically scandalous. And so Mark wanted to put things down in writing and defend it. Spending the first half of his book showing that Jesus truly is the Son of God and King of the universe. God, come to us in the flesh. And then the second half of the book showing that he truly did die and that this was a central part of his mission, and and an essential act in order that we would be saved from our sins. And so Mark's gospel is not put together in chronological order, but it's based on this, this theological theme and claim of the book that the Son of God, the King of the universe, died on a cross for our sins so that we could be saved. And along with that, within that outline, Mark seems to put stories, the stories and teachings and events of Jesus' ministry together according to uh, various theological themes as well. So Mark's gospel is, is famous for what some scholars call Markin sandwiches. Markin sandwiches. And you're probably hungry. I'm sorry for mentioning sandwiches. Uh, uh, some, people, some scholars call them interpolations. That's super boring. We'll call them sandwiches. Um, and there are at least nine Markin sandwiches, possibly more, uh, but these sandwiches show something of, of the sophistication and brilliance of Mark as a writer. Uh, he'll do something like give an account of Jesus teaching on a particular subject or, or doing a particular act. And then he'll cut to another scene uh, with a subject that illustrates or expands on the previous scene. And then he'll cut back to the original subject and scene. And uh, he'll do this seamlessly and brilliantly. And so, for example, we see this in Mark 11 12 through 21. Uh, There in verses 12 and 14, the first, you know, slice of bread, we could call it, um, we find that Jesus is hungry, and he goes to find some figs from a fig tree, and yet the fig tree is not producing any figs at the time, even though it's supposed to be in season, supposed to be producing figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. He, He pronounces judgment on the fig tree. And it's important to realize here that, that uh, the, the nation of Israel is sometimes depicted as a fig tree throughout Scripture. And then he goes on to, to show the meat of the sandwich in verses 15 to 19. Uh, we see Jesus go into the temple... To cleanse the temple and to drive out the merchants, pronouncing judgment on them for their lack of fruitfulness as his people. And then in the next slice of bread in verses 20 to 21, we see the disciples and Jesus walk by that same fig tree that Jesus had cursed earlier. And we find that it it is withered and that it will never produce fruit again. You see, Mark is claiming that God is now judging the nation of Israel because of her lack of fruitfulness and faith in Christ as her Messiah we'll do another one. Uh, So another Mark in sandwich is found in Mark 6 through 7, uh, Mark 6, 7 through 30. Uh, In verses 7 to 13, uh, we find the the first slice of bread again. Uh, We find Jesus sending out his disciples as missionaries to preach two by two. And then then the meat of the, the sandwich we find in 14 through 29. We see the martyrdom of John the Baptist. The John the Baptist is the original missionary in Mark's gospel. And he's beheaded by Herod for his faithful witnessing. And then we return to the bread in verse 30, the next slice of bread. And we see the return of Christ's disciples from their being sent out. And in, 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 uh, the conclusion of their mission, their, their missionary journey in Israel. And this is what would have been... Uh, particularly, a particularly potent point for the church in Rome when Mark wrote this, since this was written about the time that the church in Rome was being severely persecuted by the, the, the Roman government. Uh, they saw friends, many of them saw friends, loved ones, fellow church members, martyred and killed because of their faith and their witnessing uh, concerning Jesus Christ. We see this with Peter. Peter was crucified upside down at the hands of Nero as the emperor due to his faith in Jesus Christ. So you see what Mark is doing here. Mark is trying to show his hearers that this is part of the cost of being a follower of Jesus and a person on mission. To, to, the, the call to discipleship is essentially a call to take up your cross and to do whatever necessary to faithfully follow and witness for Jesus, even if it means suffering and death. By sandwiching the death of John the Baptist between the sending and the return of the disciples, Mark is showing that the path to true discipleship and mission is one of self-denial and self-sacrifice. So you can see here, as we've just looked at two of the sandwiches, we looked at the outline, you can see here that Mark's message is an urgent one. This is an urgent message. This, there's teaching concerning the personal work of Jesus, there's teaching concerning judgment. There's teaching concerning the cost of discipleship and the call to pick up your cross and follow Christ. And there's more themes like these throughout. These are urgent subjects. And Mark's style throughout the book reflects these realities. This is another characteristic that I want to show you here. Uh, see, see, along with Mark not being in chronological order, Mark is quick-moving. He's, he's, this is a fast-moving, terse, urgent book. Mark wastes no time getting into the matter of subject. Considering uh, two of Mark's favorite words in his gospel, two of his favorite words. First, the word "immediately." This is translating the Greek word "euthus," which he uses this word. 41 times, he says immediately, over and over. It's like on every page and pretty much every chapter, he uses the word immediately as he tries to take you from one subject and scene to the next very quickly. He also loves to use the the Greek word chi. It's like almost every sentence. Pastor Dan and I were talking about this a a couple of months ago. Almost every sentence begins with the Greek word chi, which is what uh, is translated as and or also Uh, The English translators don't translate it uh, every single time because it's just so repetitive. But it's like he's just moving from one thing to the next over and over and over again. He's moving so quickly throughout his gospel, showing you with terse urgency that the message of this book matters for eternity. Uh, I like to uh, picture Mark as kind of acting like my children when I come home from work at the end of the day. Uh, when I come home, they're usually playing in the backyard or in the house, and they're playing with some toys or something. And right when I walk in the door, I, you know, I'm trying to greet them with love and affection and, and uh, interest in what's going on, warmth. want to give them hugs and kiss their heads and all of that. But they just want to show me what they're playing with, or tell me about what they've done that day, or what they've created, what artwork they've worked on, what Lego houses they've built, or, or whatever else. They, they're so excited and so passionate about what they've been doing, or what they've created with Legos, what they're playing with, so much so that when I walk in, I just hear a slew of voices saying, Dad, look at this, come check this out, look what I built here, look, it just going on, and I'm quickly escorted and swept into a series of stories and descriptions and essential pieces of information from the day. Mark is like that. Mark, he wants to rush us in and escort us into the story, and he keeps us moving along at a fast pace as he shares stories and descriptions and essential pieces of information with us about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can see already in just the first verse of the first chapter of the the book that Mark is doing this already. You know, whereas uh, Matthew likes to start with a genealogy and then move into some of the birth narrative about Jesus. Luke likes to start with a birth narrative and then into a genealogy, and they want to give us some history about the ancestry of Jesus and about the how his family came to be involved and the pronouncements of the angels and the meaning of the name Jesus and what Christ means and all of these sorts of things. John, he wants to go even further back. He wants to go into eternity past to tell us about the, the deity of Jesus as the Son of God and 2nd person of the Trinity. Mark doesn't do any of that. He gets right into it and jumps right in, setting the table with just a single sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark starts his gospel, and then he immediately moves in with fast-paced, terse urgency, moving us into the message of the book with the quickness, and yet at the same time, I, 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 I want to jump into the book, but at the same time, I just want to take a moment and I want to consider these words of the first verse of the first chapter together this morning. You see, because Mark 1.1 is something like Mark's title to his gospel. You know, we call it the gospel of Mark, but that's our title. But Mark would have called it something like the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's like his title or his big ideas, single sentence summary of the whole book. This is the message of the book in a sentence. And so I want to explore these words as we come lastly to the content of Mark. The content of this book is summarized in Mark 1.1. He tells us that what is contained within this book is none other than the gospel. The gospel is of Jesus Christ, Son of God, the gospel. And here, he's not talking about a literary genre. He's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ living, dying, rising for our sins as the Son of Man and Son of God. This is literally what the word gospel means. It means good news. It's news. It's an announcement. It's, it's completely different than commands or advice or opinions It's news. News is information that you receive about a significant thing that has happened. We might illustrate it by considering this. Imagine that you got the dreaded report of a cancer diagnosis. Okay, And, And your doctor informs you, you have cancer, it's deadly, you probably won't survive. And with that, you'll likely find a bunch of people are bound to give you a bunch of advice. There's advice to check out particular doctors or to try this or that kind of diet. There's advice to look into a particular treatment at a particular hospital. There's advice on how to get your affairs in order, in order in the instance that you don't survive. Uh, there's, there's various people sharing all sorts of opinions with you about how to go paying for the treatments, what treatments to get, where to get them, who to get them by, and so much more. And, 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 and say, though, that there was a cure for cancer discovered, an undeniably sure cure. Well, this wouldn't come to you as advice or opinion. This would be announced to you as news and good news at that. Something has been done. An event has taken place. So hear the gospel of the cure for cancer. That's, that's, That's what the word gospel means. It comes from the English word Godspell, which means glad tidings, and as I mentioned earlier, it's, it, it's the English translation of the Greek word euangelion. And this word was used to speak of several different uh, pieces of, different kinds of pieces of news in the Greco-Roman world. So whenever a future king was born, they would announce it as euangelion. Whenever a new Caesar took to the throne and was inaugurated as king, they would announce it as the euangelion. If an army was off fighting a battle in a, in a faraway land, and they achieved victory on behalf of their citizens at home, they would announce it at home as euangelion. And this, this exact word was actually used in the Old Testament, uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for similar purposes. So the Greek translation of the Old Testament is written before the New Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And in the, in the Septuagint, for example, in 1 Samuel 31, 9, we see the Philistines defeat and kill Saul and they send the euangelion of their victory all throughout their land. And this word is used in, in several other places in the Old Testament for similar purposes. And yet the word is also used not just in the context of you know, geopolitical kings and military victories and those sorts of things, but in Isaiah, uh, Mark loves Isaiah by the way, in Isaiah, this word is used five times to speak about the good news of God's coming salvation in the future Messiah. And that's the good news that Mark is talking about here. You see, Jesus is the content of the gospel that Mark writes about. This Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves, is the, is, is the Christ or, or the Messiah now you might um be used to hearing the 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 uh, the word christ simply is kind of like a last name for jesus it's not a last name Christ means anointed one. It means Messiah. It's, this, is, this is Mark's way. This is a title given to Jesus which designates him as the one who would bring God's saving rule to the earth. It was the way that Mark communicated Jesus is not just a king. He's the king. He's the promised king who's bringing Yahweh's salvation to his people. But then Mark not only calls Jesus the Christ, He calls him the Son of God. Tim Keller says about this. He says, in calling him the Son of God, this is an astonishingly bold term that goes beyond the popular understanding of the Messiah at the time. It is a claim to outright divinity. You see, Mark wants us to see right off the bat that this Jesus is the eternal God come to save us. Because this, this is central to the theme of his book. So in fact, the body of Mark's gospel is bookended with references to Jesus as the Son of God. So here in Mark 1, uh, in verses 9 through 11, the body of Mark's gospel begins with the baptism of Jesus. And when he comes up out of the water after his baptism, the, fa- the Father's voice resounds from heaven with a declaration that this Jesus is none other than the Son of God. And then if we go to the exact opposite end of the book, the verse 39 of Mark 15, the body of the book comes to its conclusion with a declaration from a Roman centurion who participated in Christ's crucifixion. He says, truly this man was the Son of God. That's the way that Mark bookends his gospel, it begins and ends with a declaration that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. But then there's a question put to us in the very middle of the book, when, where the book hinges, where, where the book moves from one point to the next, the very middle of the book, wherein Mark transitions from his teaching on the kingship of Christ to the cross of Christ, Mark eight twenty seven the question is put to the apostles and subsequently to the reader, Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? The Apostle Peter pipes up, and he says that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. But understand, the question is not just put to him. The question is put to the reader, too. Who is Jesus? Who do we say that he is? Who is he? And this, of course, is the question that we started with this morning. There's so many Jesuses out there. Jesus, the political revolutionary, the nationalist, the socialist, the feminist, the life coach, or whatever else. Mark cuts through the fluff, and he tells us who Jesus is. He's the Christ and the Son of the living God, the divine one who came to put on flesh and die in our place. The death that we deserve because of our sin this is the true Jesus. This is the real Jesus. This is the historical Jesus. And the call to Mark then is to conform our view of Jesus, not to just some idealized version of ourselves, but to the Jesus who is. And to confess him as the Christ And son of God to say with heaven and the Roman centurion and the apostle Peter that Jesus is the Christ and the son of the living God and to base the entirety of our lives on that fact. This is the message and call of Mark. He's calling us to see the real Jesus, the true Jesus, and to worship him as the true king, to trust in his cross and to pick up our own and follow him. That's the call of Mark. And my prayer is that during our time in this book, that Mark's gospel would be instrumental in accomplishing that very thing. Let's pray to that end together. Father, we give you thanks for Mark's gospel. We thank you for the the clarity with which Jesus is depicted for us in it. And we thank you for the clarion call to pick up our crosses and to follow him and to be saved by his triumphant cross. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish those callings, effectuate those things in this church and in our hearts during our time in Mark's gospel, cause us to see Jesus more clearly, to worship Him more warmly, to follow Him more faithfully, and to be conformed to Him as our Savior, our Lord, as the Christ and the Son of God. We pray in His name. Amen.